You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thanks, Mike. I want you to just go with me on this. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine a world where things have just sort of gone wrong, where things are just not as they should be, things are not as they could be, where there just seems to be darkness and brokenness. There just seems to be that that everybody is walking around, and in one sense, and they're just struggling with themselves, like they are their own worst enemy, they can't get out of their own way, where relationships are toxic, where society on the whole has sort of gone this like overly materialistic madness way, and uh, everything is sort of characterized by fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I just want you to use your imagination on that. Because what I'm actually talking about, that might sound familiar to you, I'm actually talking about the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, which ironically is also very similar to our day and age and the struggle that every single one of us has. I think any of us who walk around in the world today, you don't have to be super attuned or acute to your surroundings to understand, man, things are not as they should be. Something has gone wrong in the world. There is mistrust. There is um, attack and assault and abandonment. There's even something that's gone wrong inside of me to where I don't even do the things that I know I ought to be doing. I end up causing myself harm. What's going on? And yet we as a species have been wired, we have been programmed to want the answer. We desire resolution. We do not like ending on a dissonant chord. We want closure. We want the good news. This morning, I simply want to say over and over again that it has happened. We like to say at Bethel that the gospel means something. The gospel is the good news. Now, now maybe you, you've heard that so many times that it's sort of lost its sting or its punch or its pop. So let me, let me try to rephrase it. The gospel is the good news. It's the great story. It is the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. This great, great, great piece of headline news. Eureka, Eureka, hear ye, hear ye, hear all about it. God's done a thing. He's redeemed us to himself and to one another. It's the answer to the question. Something has gone wrong. How can I possibly have right standing before what I assume and presume is a holy God? I can't accomplish it or achieve it on my own. What's the answer? The answer is the gospel. So this morning, I want to just read a story of what I think may be the greatest sort of encapsulation of how the gospel gets brought to bear in our everyday lives. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, this is a familiar passage. I'm going to read uh, the entire narrative just so that you can sort of have it in your heart and mind, and then we'll break it apart, try to explain some things, unpack some things, apply some things, and uh, that'll be our morning. 
This is the book of Acts, chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 34. So just stick with me. I want you to remember that this is written, uh, you might think of like a, like a modern screenplay. As I'm reading this, I want you to read along, but I also want you to, to see, sense, taste, smell the, the, the setting, the imagery. You're supposed to see this narrative take place. So Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But... When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely or securely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. Now let me bring you up to speed a little bit of what's going on with this great grand narrative. This is the book of Acts. We're right dead smack in the center of it. The book of Acts was written by Dr. Luke. Luke actually writes a two-volume set. There's the Gospel of Luke, there's the Book of Acts. Really, they're a two-volume set. They should go side by side. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us about the birth of the Christ. In the Book of Acts, he tells us about the birth of the church. Now, Luke has been taking all of these notes and all of this 
uh, detail from other people. But in Acts 16, we find out that Luke has joined up with the Apostle Paul. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's left his sending church of Syrian Antioch, and he's gone on his first missionary journey that took him through Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all those things, and then he went back home. Now he's on his second missionary journey. He has made it all the way into central, well, the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey today. Paul has in mind he's going to go to Ephesus. That's in the southwest corner of what is today modern Turkey. And the Holy Spirit tells him no. So Paul says, fine, if I couldn't go southwest, then I'll go northeast. I'll go to Bithynia, but the northeast part of what is modern-day Turkey. And the Spirit of Jesus says no. Twice, Paul is told no. Now that's really instructive. Sometimes it seems like God says no, but that's not the case. God will always say yes unless he has a better idea. Now, Paul didn't know that. He didn't understand that. Paul had a plan. He was going to carry the gospel forward. It's the good news. But twice, God shuts him down. And so Paul does what most of us in ministry do when we get frustrated. The most spiritually mature thing he can think of, he took a nap. He just went to bed. Like, that's it. God told me no twice. I'm out on this deal. So he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, he has a vision. And there's a person from Macedonia saying, please, please come over here. We need your help. And just like that, Paul's whole paradigm is broadened. His perspective is enlarged. Paul thought it was just going to be going around what is modern day Turkey, but God had a bigger plan. God now wanted the gospel to go internationally. God also wanted the gospel to go individually. And so Luke tells us that they set sail from the northwest corner of what again is modern Turkey from Troas. And they go to Samothrace and then Neapolis. And then they come to Philippi. This is the first time an apostle of Jesus Christ has landed in Europe. This is the first time the gospel has come to Western civilization. This is it. Paul thought it was going to be here. God had a bigger plan. So now, let me just sort of unpack this. We'll walk through this a little bit, and we'll see what Luke is going to do. Luke, intentionally, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give us three conversion stories, three conversion narratives, to tell us this is what it looks like when the gospel takes root. We're going to see very quickly that these three characters are very, very different. Because what Luke is trying to tell us, what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, is that the gospel is for the religious. The gospel is for the religious. All religion is, is the organizing narrative of your life. It's what makes life make sense. Every single person on the planet, whether Christian, whether other religion, whether atheist, whether agnostic, everybody is religious in one way. It's simply the organizing narrative of your life. And the gospel is for the religious. We're also going to see that the gospel is for the oppressed, for the down and out, for the upside down, for those against whom the world is moving. The gospel is for the oppressed. And then thirdly, we're going to see that the gospel is for the secular. The gospel is for the indifferent, the disinterested, the secular. Why? Because the point of Acts chapter 16 is astonishing. It's our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. 
Acts 16 makes this clear. So again, let me start in chapter 16. I'll begin now in uh, verse 11. They set sail from Troas. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, following day to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. This is a big deal. You see, the city of Philippi in the civil war of the Roman Empire sided with the correct two generals, with Antony and Octavian, not with Brutus and Cassius. And because of their loyalty to the victorious generals, Antony and Octavian um, granted Roman citizenship to everybody in the city of Philippi. They are now a Roman colony. There is actually a statue to Caesar Augustus in the city of Philippi that said, Caesar is our king and we eagerly await him from Rome. Which is why in the letter to the Philippians in chapter three, Paul says, no, 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 no. We are citizens of heaven and we eagerly await our savior from there. But into this context comes the Apostle Paul into this Roman colony the first time an apostle sets foot on European soil. We remain in this city some days. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now this is Paul's typical pattern for doing missions work. In his first missionary journey, and so far in his second missionary journey, this is what Paul does. He goes into a new city on the Sabbath. That's a Saturday. He preaches and teaches in the synagogue. He says, hey, all these scrolls that we're reading, let me explain to you what they mean. They get really interested. He goes off. He gets a job. He works for five days. Comes back the second Sabbath, talks to them again. They get mad, beat him up, throw him out of town. He comes back into town, plants a church, and then leaves. It's a great idea. It's not how we do church planting these days, but that's what Paul would do. Except that now he's in Europe, and there is no synagogue in Philippi. Why? To have a synagogue, you must have at least six to ten Jewish men that agree with one another. And in Philippi at this time, there are not at least six to ten Jewish men that agree with one another, and so there's no synagogue. And so Paul has to go down by the river and find a prayer meeting. And then, sort of as is now, anytime there's a prayer meeting, it's pretty much all women. I don't know why, that's just how it is, right? Paul goes down and he sees these women praying down by the river in Philippi. We came together, verse 14, and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love this. It's just one verse, but Luke is telling us an absolute load of information here. Her name is Lydia. She's a woman. She's from Thyatira. That's in central Turkey today. You might remember one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation is Thyatira. And yet she finds herself in Europe. She's in Macedonia, in Philippi, and she has a home there. She is a wealthy fashionista. She's a dealer in purple fabrics. Very, very expensive in that day and time. Very fashionable, very valuable, very highly sought after. She is a woman of means. She's Middle Eastern in appearance in a Macedonian context. The text says that she is a worshiper of God. A little bit of a wonky translation there. She is sebomene. It's a technical term. It means that she is a Gentile who was seeking after the God of Israel in Hebrew Scripture. Why didn't it just say that? I don't know. She's a Gentile seeking after Yahweh by reading Hebrew scriptures. She is religious. 
Now listen to how that verse closes. It's absolutely fascinating. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As one author put it, it's like Paul was tapping at a window that God had already opened. She is reading Hebrew scriptures, trying to understand Yahweh. This is her religion. And Paul says to her, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand all the stuff that you have been, uh, been studying there? She said, well, I, I read about this guy named Abraham. That out of nothing comes this one. And, and God says he's going to be a blessing to all nations through this one. I read about a guy named Moses who, who gets the law of God, the moral code of perfect righteousness on a mountain. But nobody can keep that. And so I read about Moses' brother Aaron who helps to institute a system of sacrifice for when we break the law. By grace, there's a covering. Something has to die, but, but that sin is atoned for. And then I read about all these kings who were supposed to come and reflect and resemble God to the people, but they all failed. They were all bad. They were all tragically flawed. And then I read about these prophets who say that one day God will send the ultimate prophet and priest and king. And Paul says, yeah. do you understand what you've just read? And she says, I just told you. And he goes, no, let me explain it. It's Jesus. You see, the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. He is the one who is the blessing to all nations, not just Israel. He is the blesser and the blessing to all nations. He is the better Moses. He is the prophet that comes and says, this is what God is like. This is his moral code of righteousness and you could never fulfill it, but I will. I have. And the system of Aaron, the the. The mechanism that is in place for when you don't keep the law of God perfectly, something has to die. It's Jesus, Paul said. He died once and for all. Oh, and these kings that you read about, they're all flawed, not Jesus. He will rule and reign eternally, forever, in righteousness. He has no flaw, and he is the prophet, and he is coming again. Do you understand? And the text says she prosecane. She reacts, she responds, but that's not a good translation. She prosecutes, she gasps, she finds it beautiful. She has a reaction. She goes, it makes sense, it all clicks. Here's what Luke is telling us. Paul is effective in converting Lydia with rational discourse. He walks her through the text. God's readied and opened and prepared her heart. Paul gives her the truth of Scripture, and she responds. And it is beautiful to her. She's converted. She was not a convert before. She was seeking after God, not a convert. See, previously, God was useful to her. She was doing a thing so that God would do a thing. It's transactional. God was useful. That's a religious person. But when she understands who God is and what God has done, God is beautiful to her. He is lovely to her. C.S. Lewis in his reflection on the Psalms says, the more we praise something, the more beautiful it becomes to us. Let me say that again, because some of you perhaps don't have an accurate picture of God. Perhaps it's because we've never actually authentically praised him. The more we praise something, the more beautiful it becomes to us. And she prosecane. You can see it immediately because this woman of means and wealth brings them to her home. And she can't help but overwhelmingly respond by blessing others. Previously, God was useful. Now, he is beautiful. See, the gospel is for the religious because they think they've already got it. 
But the gospel invades that narrative and says, no, don't you see who God is, what God has done? It is a great story. It's an awesome announcement. The gospel is for the religious. But now we're going to get a second conversion story. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Again, just one verse, but it is absolutely full. This girl is a slave. I want you to pay attention and notice that she is the exact opposite of Lydia. Whereas Lydia has means and wealth and control, she's a businesswoman, she's traveling. This girl is a business. She's being trafficked. She is bound socially and economically by men. She is bound spiritually by a demon. Now the text says a spirit of divination. Technically it is the spirit of the python. It's very frightening. It's a very troublesome verse. Do not like reading. It makes me very uncomfortable. We know from historical record from that same time that Oracle of Delphi and the Oracle of Didyma that the spirit of the python is what inhabited girls and they were trafficked sexually and sold off for spiritual fortune telling. This girl could not be more underneath, upside down, bottom of the barrel, and oppressed. This is who she is. The exact opposite of Lydia. Why is Luke telling us this? Ah, this one's different. This one's different. See, the gospel is for everyone. And this is very good news. Listen to what happens in verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Both she and the wicked spirit knew precisely who these men were and what they were doing. And they were right. They had correct information, not converted. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. It's fascinating to me. This girl is the exact opposite of Lydia. Paul does not walk up to her and say, all right, if you died tonight, would you choose smoking or not smoking? You know why Paul didn't do that? Because it's stupid. Don't do that. Nor does he say, hey, let me walk you down the Roman road. A, it hasn't been written yet. B, it wouldn't have worked. Hey, let me give you four spiritual laws. Wouldn't have worked. This girl's a demon-possessed girl. Lydia is converted through rational discourse. This girl is converted through a power encounter. In the name of Jesus, I reverse and release that oppression that you are under. He didn't try to explain things by going to Leviticus. He did with Lydia, not with this girl. See, the gospel is for the religious. The gospel is also for the oppressed. When we encounter mechanisms of injustice and, and, and harm, we are to engage. A lot of people will ask, well, is your church, is it conservative or is it liberal? Do you do exposition or do you do justice? And I say, yes, because the gospel is for everyone. And if we're giving the gospel right, no one should be able to pin us down politically. The gospel is for everyone. It's for the religious. It's for the oppressed. This girl would not have responded well to a tract. Not going to happen. Well, Luke's going to tell us that when the gospel starts to go forward, it's always going to meet resistance. And sure enough, verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. This is sort of the, uh, the agora. This is where the, the mall and city hall are all there together. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Wow! Hear this. These purveyors of the gospel are accused of being morally and socially reprehensible. I just want you to imagine a world in which those who claim Christ are deemed by their society as morally reprehensible. Should not surprise us. It was 2,000 years ago as well. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is a sort of sanitized version. This is a mob riot where these people take clubs and bludgeon them repeatedly for a very long time, almost to death. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. This is mob psychology. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is torture. It's not just that he put them in cuffs on the ground. He fastens their legs in such a way that it feels like the tibia of the lower leg is about to splinter. After they've been beaten nearly to death, stripped almost naked, now they're cast in the inner, inner, inner dark dungeon, fastened in torturous stocks. And then we get to meet the third converted individual. So far, we've had a wealthy fashionista. So far, we've had a demon-possessed slave girl. But good news, the third person is a man. Yes, even men can get saved. This is very good news. See, the gospel is for everyone, not just for women, wealthy or oppressed. It's even for secular, indifferent, disinterested men. And I know some of them, and so do you. You might be sitting in one's chair right now. Totally disinterested, secular, indifferent. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Let me, let me, let me remind you, they've been beaten with clubs. Their legs are fastened in splintering stocks. And they're praying and singing hymns to God, which is a clear indicator that their names were not Eric Barton. Because this is what I would have been saying. Ah! And I would have been saying, God, you're kind of missing this. This is a bad idea. You're letting this one slip through. I know you're sovereign and all, but not today. This isn't supposed to happen to me. I'm a pretty decent person. This hurts. I'm bored. There's no Wi-Fi. But they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. They are worshiping. Despite their circumstance, despite their discomfort, they are singing that which is true about God. Wow, that's convicting. And look what happens. And the prisoners were listening to them. I remind you, it's midnight. They wanted to be asleep, but they're hearing something they have never heard before. From the pit of suffering <laughs> comes singing. What is happening here? Well, verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's a tip off that God's involved. Okay, because when there's an earthquake, doors don't open. When there's an earthquake, doors are jammed shut. You can't get out. It's terrifying. And by the way, stocks and uh, bindings don't just fall off. God's in this. Now, I just got to level with you transparently. If that happens to me, I am up and I am running like a scalded ape. I'm out of there. But not these two. These two stay put. Ah, you see? The gospel is for everyone. It's for the religious, it's for the oppressed, it's even for the secular. 
With the religious, you have a rational discourse. With the oppressed, you have a power encounter. But with the secular, indifferent, disinterested, you bring the gospel to them and you show them. You don't tell them. You show them. This is a man. He's the jailer, which means we know that in that time period in a Roman colony, every civil service job was given to a retired Roman soldier, a battle-tested, proven Roman soldier. This is sort of his pension plan. This man knew honor. This man knew life and death, and he knew death at the end of a sword. He's a grizzled, secular man. He's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He's a guy. He's not a spiritual dude. He's, not, he's just a dude. He's just a guy. This is the point of this passage, that he's just a guy. And the gospel's even for him. But you don't convince him. You don't out-argue him. You show him the power of the gospel. This man's not looking for something lovely. This guy's not oppressed by any social system. He's just a dude. He's just a guy. And into his life walks the gospel. Paul and Silas are set free. Do they leave? No. They stay. They stay put. He can't understand this. When the jailer, verse 27, woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Roman law is pretty clear. Your prisoner escapes, you die. Rather than suffer, suffer that humiliation, he's just going to kill himself. What matters most to him is honor. These men were brought into the prison as the Roman jailer, it is his job to nurse their wounds, to wash them, clean them, to give them medical care, and to set food before them. Instead, he treats them with evil, locks them in stocks. And these men, against all expectation, he's never seen anything like this before, they repay his evil with good. Because they know they've already been set free by Jesus. And if they escape, he dies. They are willing to stay for his sake. He's never seen behavior like this before on any battlefield or in this prison before. They are demonstrating the power of the gospel. Because we have already received every good and perfect thing we could ever need or want, we're free to stay. And it rocks his world. He's never seen someone to respond to suffering like this. Hmm, that's interesting. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Somehow Paul knew, ah, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and this Roman veteran soldier is trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. I've never, ever seen men do this. I want what you have. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I know you love this verse. I do too. But let me, let me just remind you, this is a story. This suicidal civil servant is not asking how to have eternal life with God through Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. He doesn't know who Jesus is, never heard of him before. He's not asking, how do I join your church, bring a casserole, join a life group, and tithe? He's not asking that. He's literally saying, how am I going to get out of this? You guys, have, you, you guys obviously have something. How am I going to survive the night? Ah, but Paul and Silas answer the better question. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, not just in this life, but forever. You and your household. It's so much bigger and better than you thought. You see, the gospel is for the religious. The gospel is for the oppressed. The gospel is even for the secular. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Now they explain everything to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Now he's treating them as he should have treated them before. Previously, he treated them with evil and they repaid him with good and it broke him. Brother and sister, do you repay evil with good or do you repay evil with your entitlement? And then you wonder why people aren't coming to faith in your sphere of influence. He took them in that same hour of the night and washed the wounds and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. He just keeps going with his kindness because he is converted. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Not just that he was saved, but that he believed that he was converted. See, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for the religious. The gospel is for the oppressed. The gospel is even for the secular, indifferent, disinterested. Why are we talking about this passage? Well, three quick points of application. Number one, there is no one for whom the gospel is less or more suited. There's no one who can say, well, I'm not the kind of person that would be a Christian, or I am the right person that would be a Christian. No, there is no such person that, for whom the gospel is less or more suited. Listen, we have three different races likely represented here. Lydia is from what is today modern Turkey. She would have appeared in Middle Eastern. She is a race who is living in Europe. The slave girl is almost certainly trafficked from North Africa. We know that in Philippi at that time, that was what was happening. She was almost certainly a North African. The jailer is almost certainly European. He would have been a Roman soldier. All of these people are in need of the gospel. There is no one for whom the gospel is less or more suited. There's nobody that can say, the gospel's not really for me. The point of this passage is to say, no, 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 the gospel is for everyone. Second point, there is no greater unifying force than the gospel. There is no greater unifying force. And our world today, more than ever, is clamoring, begging, pleading for some kind of unity and community. And it will never happen apart from the gospel, ever. Cannot happen. Not only is the gospel the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself, but also to one another. I remind you, this is the very first church in Europe. This wealthy fashionista, this demon-possessed slave girl, this suicidal civil servant would have nothing in common ever to hang out and have tater tot casserole ever apart from the unifying force of the gospel. And now they become the three first members of First Philippi. Incredible. And the thing that we have in common is the gospel. Look, I know apart from the gospel, none of you would want to have anything to do with me, and I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. But the church is that group of people who have been redeemed, reconciled, yes, to God, but also to one another. And so hear me, when the church gathers on a Sunday morning, yes, it matters. When the church gathers on a Sunday morning, we are proclaiming the power of the gospel, that it redeems people to God, yes, but it's also the place where all of us can have the great common denominator of being in Christ. See, the gospel's for everyone. Third point, the gospel cannot be canned. The gospel can't be canned. These are three very different people. If you walk up to the, to the suicidal civil servant and give him a plaque or a track, he's gonna say, and he's gonna beat you with a rod. 
If you try to give him a power encounter, not going to work. If you try to give a power encounter to Lydia, not going to work. The gospel can't be canned. Let me say something that's going to ruffle some feathers. I think our concept of evangelism is a 20th century American invention. It does not exist for 1900 years of the church when suddenly in our country we decide, hey, let's pack them into stadiums, speak a sermon, and thousands get saved. Maybe, hope so, don't know, but that's a foreign idea to the church. God opened Lydia's heart and Paul spoke truth to her. God prepared that little girl to be rescued. God prepared that encounter with the jailer. That's why we say the greatest weapon in preparing someone for the receipt of the gospel is not your articulation of the Roman road. It is prayer that God would do a thing. I know you've all got somebody. It's your brother, it's your neighbor, it's your mom, it's your kid. And you're wondering why hasn't somebody saved them? I don't know, pray for them. Pray for them and when you get tired of praying for them, pray some more that God would do a thing, that God would do for them what he has done for you because you see the gospel's for them too. But you see, that's not the end of this story. Why is this here? Remember, the apostle Paul was trying to stay in Turkey, but God had bigger plans. God had a much bigger plan. And I'm so thankful that he did because we have our heritage as Western Christians. We stand on First Philippi. Do you see? Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. God said no. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. God said no, you're going to Europe. Paul tells us in his letter to the church at Philippi, that he was the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel. Nobody had a higher pedigree than Paul, which means Paul, like every other Jewish man, would have prayed the prayer of a Jewish man. That people still pray, Jewish men still pray to this very day in 2018. And this is true. The prayer of every Jewish man. Would you, would you like to hear it? No, let's do it this way instead. Everybody stand up. I'm gonna teach it to you. Stand up. This'll be a chance to see if you're still awake. Stand up, hands up, because a Jewish man, when he prays, he stands. He would never kneel, that's beneath him. A Jewish man stands and he raises his hands and he looks to heaven. Are you doing that? Now I want you to repeat after me. Oh my God, I thank you that you did not make me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. Amen. You may be seated. Paul would have known this prayer, would have played it his entire life. Now watch, the very first converts in Europe are a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. You see, the gospel is for the religious, it's for the oppressed, it's for the secular, but the gospel was even for Paul. And the gospel is for you. Paul thought that he was there to, to give the gospel and then he realized, oh, the first three people of the church in Philippi are a wealthy fashionista, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal civil servant named Sid. This is how you're gonna plant a church? It's like the worst church planting class in ever, ever any seminary. And God says, yes, it's a terrible idea unless I'm in it and then it's a great idea. Do you see? The gospel was for Paul, and the gospel is for you. You and I will never go nor grow beyond the gospel. It comes to bear in every aspect of our lives. When we sin, it's that we fail to believe the gospel. What God has given is enough. It's enough. The way I treat my wife, the way you treat your husband, 
Do you do so because of how you believe the gospel? The way you lead your kids, the way you lead your parents, the way you do your job, the way you engage in this church. Do you believe the gospel? You see, the gospel is for you. You will never, ever go or grow beyond the gospel. You see, Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. Jesus was powerful enough for the slave girl. Jesus was practical enough for the jailer. I wonder, is he really enough for you? It's a question only you can answer. Now this morning we have the privilege and the prerogative to take part in communion, or perhaps you're used to hearing it called Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the Lord's Table. It's the most, I think, visceral way we can demonstrate our receipt of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Here in just a moment, you're gonna receive these elements and then you're going to pass them to someone else. Those who have received grace will then in turn give grace, just like Lydia did, just like the jailer did. Scripture tells us that we are to take communion somberly, seriously, being aware of the depths of our depravity and that which Christ has removed from us. So I invite you to do some serious contemplation, some meditation on that which Christ has taken from you and remove that sin as far as the east is from the west. If there's anything between you and anybody else, I invite you to deal with that first and not take communion. If you're not a believer this morning, as the elements come past, we're going to invite you to not participate, to just let the elements go. No one's going to point or say anything. Children, if your parents haven't told you to take communion yet, then please don't do that. But I invite you to observe as we contemplate, commemorate, and celebrate what God has done in Christ. So I'm going to ask those who are going to serve, if you'd please come forward. We'll pass these elements out. If you would hold them to the end, we'll all take them together. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. May we, Father, bring you honor and glory as we take part in this ordinance. Thank you for the picture it is of death and of life. Ready our hearts, God. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, the scripture says that our Lord took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, representing my active obedience. I will have lived my entire life perfectly fulfilling the law of Moses, God's moral code of righteousness in every thought, word, and deed. And he looked at those 12 knuckle-draggers and said, I know, you never can, you never will. But I'm offering this finished record to you freely. Your fathers, he said, ate manna that fell in the wilderness and they died, but whoever eats this bread shall never perish but have everlasting life. What a gift finished. Let's eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, the scripture says he took the cup. Because the wages of sin is death, separation from God. And Jesus said, it's too horrible for you. It's too much for you. I will pay that as well. Because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus said, I will pay that check. So we have the privilege of receiving all of his righteousness and him receiving all of our sin. 
So let's raise a cup to our king who cares, to our big brother who is proud of us, and our champion who is willing to die. Let's drink in remembrance of him. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of partaking and participating in this ordinance where we get to proclaim the death of Jesus until his return because he is alive. God, we thank you for the gospel. If there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, that has not received and believed the gospel, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. God, that you would do for them what I know you have done for me and for those of us in this room who are known by you. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the gospel? Help us to see through that lens in every relationship, every interaction we have. Something has gone wrong deep inside every one of us, but you have provided the resolution. Thank you for the gospel, God. May it sound forth. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. We will be dismissed. Now may the God who brought again from our dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work and may you do it with joy. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.